Father, we are grateful to be together on this Sunday morning. We're grateful to be able to open the word of God and know it is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts right to the heart of the matter. And that's really what we need, Lord. We need the light of the word to show us who you are and who we are in Jesus Christ. There's been an ongoing attack for the last 2,000 years on the person of Christ, who he is, whether or not he is God, And Lord, the Bible emphatically answers this question, and I pray that as we look at this most majestic text on the identity, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, that you will show us who you are. And it will cause us even to marvel more, because this God who made everything, the sustainer of the universe, the creator, the image of the invisible God came to save us. And it is just so awesome to know this, Lord, and We pray that you will bless our time together. We pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to the truth of your word. May you be glorified this morning. Draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now with holding your place in Colossians 1, go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Let's take a look at a conflict that Jesus often seemed to be in with the Jewish religious leadership. John chapter 8. They're going back and forth, but to cut to the heart of the matter, look at verse 21 of John 8. Jesus said, therefore, again to them, John 8, 21, I go away and you shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come, John 8, 22. Therefore, the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying, verse 23, saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you'll notice that he is often italicized. It literally just says in the original, I am, which is the name that the, that the Lord gave to Moses at the burning bush. Who shall I say sent me to the children of Israel? And God says, I am that I am. Jesus appeals to that name. He says, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. What's at stake in the debate of the person of Christ? Does it really matter if you're a little bit off in regard to who he is and his claims? It does matter. In fact, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am the voice of the burning bush, that I am God Almighty, you will die in your sins. That's a pretty radical statement. And so they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what I've been saying to you from the beginning. From the beginning, Jesus was making a claim. He was making the claim both by his verbal discourses or his sermons and by his actions. He had the power to forgive sins, the power to heal diseases, the power to raise the dead. And he was saying to the Jews, and by the way, the Jews, this Jewish leadership knew who he was. He told a parable. The parable made it clear that they said, this is the heir, come let us him. They knew who he was, but they were afraid of his power because of their positions of authority. Authority was a big issue when Jesus was on the planet. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians, a little bit to your right. The Apostle Paul picks up the theme of the identity of Jesus Christ, and he says these words to the Corinthian church. 
The Corinthian church was being exposed to some Gnostic ideas, just like the people of Colossae, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. And Paul spoke of the fear that he had for them. He said, I am afraid, 2 Corinthians eleven three, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes, 2 Corinthians eleven four, and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Some versions say, I'm afraid that you might put up with this. There is another Jesus, 2 Corinthians eleven uh, four. There's a different spirit and a different gospel. Now, don't let this shock you. Jesus was a very common name in the first century. So Jesus Christ as a name, Jesus as a name is an important name, but there were many people named Jesus in the first century. You have to have the right Jesus to be saved. You have to believe the right thing about him. There is another Jesus and there's another gospel. There's a Jesus in just about every world religion that you can think of. There's a Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses, a Jesus in Mormonism, a Jesus in Islam, a Jesus in witchcraft, by the way. Everybody has their version of Jesus. But Jesus said, here's what's at stake. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, that's a lot that's at stake. So that's why we have to pay close attention to these kinds of passages. Now, in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is addressing the Colossian church, and there's a concern that's been expressed to him about this church. He's never met them before, but he's been praying for them. And as he prays for them, just go back and revisit the prayer for a second. He says in verse 9, Colossians 1, this, For this reason, since the day we heard of your faith in Jesus, is the context, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The word knowledge there is epinosis. If you look up the word in Greek, it actually is a word that speaks of precision or precise knowledge. Paul is praying for the church that they would have precise knowledge. About what? About the person of Jesus Christ. About who it is that saves them. This is an area where you do need to have some precision. Now, there are some people that are just flat out ignorant. They've grown up in certain systems. They've not been exposed to certain scriptures. I'm not talking about people who are ignorant and are growing. Maybe they don't have the full picture of Christ yet. You may be in that situation this morning. But there are people who know the truth and still deny the truth. And those are people that would be considered heretics. And those people have been dealt with pretty severely in the history of the church, been booted out of the church for preaching a false gospel and preaching a lie about Jesus Christ. So Paul prays for their knowledge. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of his will, notice in all spiritual wisdom and understanding or insight. Now, if you continue to look at the prayer for a second, go back, go uh, down to verse 12. It says, he's giving thanks to the Father as Paul prays for them who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom or in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, it's in this Christ that we have redemption. So we have to have the right Christ to make sure that we are redeemed, that we are forgiven. 
I was listening to a call-in show this last week, and a gal called in, and she said, uh, you know, I'm a little concerned. I come from a culture where there's all these gods and, and so forth, and she says, I've become a Christian, and I've gone into the Christian church, but I hear a lot of worship directed towards Jesus, but not really towards the Father, and she said, I think that that might hurt the father's heart or hurt his feelings. All this attention is paid to Jesus and not to the father. What do you think of such a thing? And the response of those who were answering the question said, actually, it glorifies the father to worship the son. In Hebrews 1, he said, let all the angels of God, what? Worship him. That's Hebrews 1, right in uh, verses 5 through about 8. Let all the angels of God worship him. The Father is glorified when the Son is worshiped. He's given all authority and all judgment to the Son. The Father and Son are one, so when the Son is worshiped and glorified, the Father is as well. This is where we get into the, the high doctrine of the Trinity, but when you are worshiping the Son, you are worshiping the Father. Because God is one. And so they said this is okay because this is what the Father has done. Now sometimes people get the idea that the Father is some vengeful God of the Old Testament. And Jesus, to appease his Father's wrath, said, Father, don't judge them. I'll take care of it. I'll die for them. But that's not accurate either. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Who gave his son? The father gave his son. The father so loved you that he was willing to give his son. And he wants you to understand who his son is. And he wants you to understand why he came for you and for me. So this is what might be called some of the highest Christological passage or one of the highest Christological passages in the Bible. That just means the study of Christ. And here's what it says. Verse 15, chapter 1. There are many people, Colossians 1.15, who believe that verses 15 through 20 are an ancient hymn of the church. There were ancient creedal statements that were going around the church before they were often written down. A little bit of a debate there, but some believe 15 through 20 is an ancient hymn. Uh, sung by the church and spoken by the church. It says, and he, in context, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, the first thing that you'll see is a phrase, he is. Uh, this phrase is used, I think, in verses 17 and 18. It's, it's telling you about the identity of Jesus Christ. This is what he is. What is he? He is the image of the invisible God. Now, the word image in Greek is a Greek word called icon, E-I-K-O-N, if you're interested in taking a note on it. It is where we get our English word icon, I-C-O-N. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. Now, this verse says that God is invisible. What does that mean? It means that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is essentially spirit, John 4, 24. That's what Jesus said of his father. In Luke 24, Jesus says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. God, uh, who appeared to Moses on the mount, Moses said, show me your glory. Lord, I want to see your glory. And the Lord said to Moses, no one can see me and live. You cannot see my face and live. God can manifest his glory, but God is essentially spirit. 
Non-corporeal is what theologians call it. Without a body. He is essentially spirit. So Jesus has become, this is what the Greek word icon means, the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Might want to write that down. This is what the word icon means. Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. He has come to communicate God to us. The disciple said, Lord, show us the Father and it would suffice for us. Show us a theophany, kind of like Moses got. At least he got to see the back parts of your beauty. And Jesus said, have you been so long with me, Philip, that you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I am the icon of God. I am the visible manifestation of the invisible God. I am God, if I can put it this way, in a bod. Okay? If you want to rhyme, if if rhymes really help you. When Jesus, when the annunciation of Jesus' birth came to Joseph and he was being assured that he could marry Mary, that it would be okay, he said, the virgin shall be with a child and bear a son, Matthew 1.23, quoting from Isaiah, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's what Jesus is. He is fully God. And the word icon speaks of both representation and manifestation. The essential word in Greek, if you can, re- you can read a bunch of Greek lexicons, dictionaries on it, the essential meaning of the word icon is representation and manifestation. God became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible teaches. And so he is the image of the invisible God. He came to reveal God to us. He's not simply just a portrait of God. He is God. He has the personal characteristics and distinguishing marks of God. One writer says there's a painting in a palace in Rome by René. It is is painted into the ceiling of the dome over 100 feet high. To stand at the floor level and look upward, the painting seems to be surrounded by a fog, which leaves its contents unclear. But in the center of the great dome room is a huge mirror, which in its reflection picks up the picture. By looking into the mirror, you can see the picture with great clarity. Jesus Christ, born in a manger at Bethlehem, is the mirror of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, this is what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. You might want to write down John 1.18. No, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him or has declared him. John 1.18, the word explained him or declared him is where we get the English word exegesis. Sometimes when I say exegesis, my wife says, would you please explain to the people what you mean by that? Here's what it means. When you exegete a passage, you bring out the meaning of the passage. You reveal the meaning or substance of the passage. A pastor is supposed to be good at exegesis, not eisegesis. Exegesis is to let the passage speak for itself, to bring forth what is there in substance. Eisegesis is to read something into the passage that's not there. Jesus is the exegesis of God. He explains the Lord. He explains the Father. He reveals him to us. 
so that when you see Jesus in the Gospels, you see the Father. You see the heart of the Father. You see what he's like. Now, let's be clear, and this is some difficult sledding for our minds. Jesus is not the Father, though. There is a distinction between the Father and the Son. When Jesus prays to the Father, he is literally praying to another personality. That's where we get the Trinity. Within the triune God, there's three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this is what the Bible is teaching us, that Jesus Christ is the perfect representation of God to men so that we can know and we can understand who God is. Turn over to Hebrews chapter one. The writer of Hebrews affirms this truth, Hebrews one, when he says these words. Hebrews one one. Hebrews one one. I'll give you a second to turn there. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, Hebrews 1, 2, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus the son, verse 3, Hebrews 1, is the radiance of his glory. And what's your Bible say? The exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the Father. This word in Greek, exact representation, is character with a K in the middle instead of a C. It means an exact impression, a precise, precise reproduction and Jesus is, you could say it this way, the exact impress of God. Although man is the icon of God, go back to uh, Colossians chapter one, man is made in the image of God. We see that in the book of Genesis and other places. Um, he, fall, he fell. And so Jesus Christ, you could say it this way, because he is both God and man, is the exact representation of God to us, and he is also a perfect man. We want to be careful here, but here's what we could say about this. Jesus Christ, as we watch him in the Gospels, is everything that man was supposed to be. Man was supposed to glorify God in all of his actions. He was supposed to have a direct connection with his maker. He was not to be separated by sin from God. And so we have to be careful here because Jesus did miracles and all of that because Jesus is God, but Jesus is everything that man is supposed to be as well, the perfect man and, of course, 100% God. I know that this is some hard stuff to get your mind around, but this is what the Bible teaches. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, the firstborn there is a word called prototyp. Prototokos. <laughs> There's a big debate on how you say it. I've heard it say, say it, prototokos or prototokos. But there you go. So, firstborn. Now, here's what Jehovah's Witnesses have said. With all due respect to our Jehovah's Witness friends, they come to the door, and this is one of their pet texts. And they say, you see, Jesus Christ is called the firstborn, so he must be the first one born. And in their literature, they compare this word firstborn. If, if it's said that there's the firstborn of Pharaoh, then he's the first one born, right? Wrong. Because in Jewish uh, life and also in the Greek world, 
The firstborn often was not the first one born. Jacob took precedence over Esau. Was he the firstborn? No. Isaac took precedence over Ishmael. Was he the firstborn? No. The firstborn was the one that was given the place of rank or preeminence or superiority. The firstborn got a double portion. If Jesus Christ is literally the firstborn, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would like us to think, and here's what they've done, this is a little bit from history, they've picked up what's called the Arian heresy. There was a man way back in church history called Arius of Alexandria, and he taught that Jesus was the first and greatest creation of God. He was perhaps a high-ranking angel. Uh, he was a great one, maybe even a lesser God with a small g, but he was simply created. He was a great creation, but he was created. Arius, for that teaching, got kicked out of the church. The Jehovah's Witnesses in the 1800s picked up this teaching, and this is one of the texts that they, they go with. They say that Jesus, somewhere back before the physical creation was made, was the first and greatest creation of God. How does that reflect the word firstborn, though? I mean, if you're going to take firstborn literally, wouldn't that mean that Jesus would have to have been born somewhere way back when? I'm not talking about Jesus being born to Mary in the manger. We're not talking about that. We're talking about somewhere way back in the distant past, even before creation occurred. Was he literally born then? No, he wasn't. And so that's not even what the Jehovah's Witnesses are saying. So what does the word firstborn mean? Well, in their book, Reasoning from the Scriptures, the Watchtower Society argues that the word firstborn indicates that Jesus is the eldest in Jehovah's family of sons. Indeed, the book says the term firstborn occurs over 30 times in the Bible, and in every case that it is applied to living creatures, the firstborn is part of a larger group, just as the firstborn of Pharaoh refers to the first one born to Pharaoh. So is Jesus the firstborn uh, or created by Jehovah, they say? In the book, The Greatest Man Who Ever Lived, a Jehovah's Witness book, we read, Jesus was a very special person because he was created by God before all other things. Now, this is interesting because if you read the text closely, Colossians calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, not the firstborn of Jehovah. Listen to this argument. Thus, the JW argument makes no logical sense. If we are to draw a direct parallel between the firstborn of Pharaoh and the firstborn of all creation, then we must conclude that creation parented Jesus. But indeed, this is the reverse of what actually happened as the context of the passage clearly demonstrates. For in the very next verse, we find that, that Christ parented creation, not creation parenting Jesus. See, it says, it says here that he's the firstborn of all creation. So does that mean that creation parented Jesus? Well, look at the next verse. It says, for by him, Jesus, how many things? All things were created both in the heavens. Look at how sweeping this is. And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and notice for him. Jesus Christ has created everything. He can't be a creation if he is the creator, can he? And the answer is no. So what does the term firstborn then mean in context? It simply means this, that he has high rank, that he is over the creation, that it all belongs to him, that he is the heir of it all. 
This is what the passage is actually teaching. If you go to John 1 for a second, John 1, as John picks up the idea of the logos or the logos that came into the world, John 1, verse 1, here's what he says. And just so you know, there's other places where this is emphatically stated. John 1, 1 says these words. In the beginning, John 1, 1 was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice what it says, John 1, 3. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, if you look at verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know that the word is Jesus. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and all things came into being by him. What John 1.1 is teaching is that before the beginning began, Jesus was there. Here's why. You can't be the beginner of creation and not be there before the beginning began. <laughs> if you're there before the beginning began, then you must be the beginner, right? And so what Jesus Christ did, and here's what the passage goes on to say, it says, how many things, John 1, 3? All things came into being by him, and apart from him, there is nothing. In other words, there is no creation without him. What does that mean? Jesus Christ is the creator. He created everything. And the sweeping statement in Colossians 1 includes angels. Go back to Colossians 1. And we'll take a little closer look at this before we move on. Colossians 1, actually verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. So visible things are clear, all the different animals and species. Uh, there's all kinds of different insects. There's all kinds of different animals and species. It's incredible. Flowers. Think of everything in the universe. All things were created, both in the heavens. That means that Jesus made the stars. He made the constellations. He made everything in them, in the heavens, notice, on the earth, all the different uh, plants and animals and human beings. He made you and me. Things that are visible and what? Invisible. Now, the invisible is given more detail. It includes thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. This, these four phrases here encapsulate what theologians would call ranks of angels. Jesus made the angels. Now, the Colossian heresy that I told you about a few weeks ago said that Jesus was one of many emanations from God. Here's what the Gnostics or the Colossian errorists taught. They said, there's a God out there, but all matter is evil, so he didn't really make the world. And there was all these different go-betweens between God and the ultimate creator of the world. Jesus may be kind of at the top, but there's all these different emanations between. And in essence, they were saying that they're basically angels. But this verse says that Jesus made the angels. He's not an angel. He made the angels. Are you with me? So he can't be a created being. As high-ranking as angels may be, as glorious as Michael the archangel may be, he's my favorite in the Bible, by the way. <laughs> Still, it's a pretty big demotion to go from being the creator to something created. 
Some people say, well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. If you try to demote God, it's a pretty serious thing. I would imagine that God takes it personally. Right? If you want to say someone who claims to be God is not God, then you're putting yourself in a pretty tough spot. And so it does say that Jesus made everything. The Greek professor Daniel Wallace put it, he says, Paul makes it clear throughout this epistle that Jesus Christ is the supreme creator. He made everything, everything in the world. He made you and he made me. And he loved us so much that he came into this world to save us. That's the incredible truth about the person of Jesus Christ. By him, all things were made. Now, you say, well, okay, if the Jehovah's Witnesses go with this whole firstborn thing, what do they do with verse 16? Well, we often get ourselves in trouble when we isolate verses. We always need to read verses in what? In their proper context. So if they keep reading, they'd be okay, but here's what they do. They insert the word other. So here's how their version reads. For by him, verse 16, all other things were created both in the heavens and the earth, visible and and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all other things have been created by him and for him. Now what their, their, the people who did their translation called the New World Translation say is they put the word other in there to help explain the passage. Well, the word other is not in the original. Now, sometimes they say, but sometimes translators will put words in there to clarify meaning. They do it to clarify meaning, not to change meaning. Very important point. When you are taking Greek and Hebrew into a receptor language like English, and you see a sentence that needs to be clarified because there's not a great English word that directly translated, translates that, you might use a, a couple of different words to bring clarity not to change the meaning. So what they did is they added the word other in there, and what it does is change the meaning, and and they think that that gets them off the hook because then Jesus can somehow be created. Now go to Isaiah 44 for a second, Isaiah 44, and look at verse 24 with me. If you study the Old Testament, you'll find that Isaiah chapters 40 through 48 are an incredible section where God says, I am the only God, there is no other God Uh, Before me or after me, I am it. There was no God formed before me, nor shall there be one after me. Let's just take a a peek at this emphatic statement. Uh, 44.6, Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is what? No God besides me. Now, what happens is in some of these circles where people embrace this, what we call this Arian heresy, they say that Jesus is a a God, and in the Jehovah's Witness translation of John 1.1, they call him a God. Okay, well, so they're, they're saying that Jesus is some sort of lesser God. He's not almighty God, but he's still, he's still a pretty great one. He's like a, maybe a mighty God, but not almighty God. But there's only really one category of true deity. Isaiah 44, 6 says, I am the first and I am the last, and there is what? There is no God besides me. Just look back at Isaiah 43, 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me, 43, 10, and understand that I am he. 
Before me there was no God formed, and there will be what? None after me. The true God did not make a second God or a bunch of different God-like characters or angels or whatever. In between him, there's one God. He didn't form a God after him. There was no God formed before him. If you have to form a God, then he isn't God. If you have to be made, then you're not God. This, this whole section, by the way, is really mocking the gods of the nations in the, in the ancient world because they would form a god, they would, they would make an idol, and then they would make sure that their god wouldn't fall down. Okay, are, are you okay? Don't. And then there's a great story of the god Dagon in the Old Testament. Remember what happened to Dagon? Dagon fell. Right? And the, the priest had to come in and pick up the pieces, right? Let's, let's super glue. We got any gorilla glue over here? They, if you have to put your God back together, I think you might want to change religions. Now in Isaiah 44, 24, thinking of this context, notice what the verse says. 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am maker of how many? Of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself, spreading out the earth all alone. Now, if Jesus is the first and greatest creation of God, and he's a junior partner in creation, and this is what these groups say. They say, well, what happened was Jehovah made Jesus, and then he made all the creation through Jesus. So Jesus was made, and then he made the planets, and then he made everything else, and, and, and the angels or whatever. But, but Jesus was a junior partner in creation. He was there. Maybe even he created things, but it was by the power and authority of Jehovah. Wait a minute. The Bible just said in Isaiah 44, 24, that God, the God who made all things in 44:24, middle of the verse, he stretched out the heavens by himself and he spread out the earth. What's your Bible say? By. All alone. This means clearly that Jehovah or Yahweh, which is the name that's used here, is the one who made everything. There wasn't some partnership between a, a created being after Yahweh uh, existed. He existed forever. And this means that Jesus, of course, is the eternal creator. There's no way around it. Back to Colossians. He has the name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One writer says, by studying the creation, one can gain a glimpse of the power, knowledge, and wisdom of the creator. The sheer size of the universe is staggering. The sun, for example, has a diameter of 864,000 miles, 100 times that of the earth. It could hold 1.3 million planets the size of earth inside of it. The star Betelgeuse, however, has a diameter of 100 million miles, which is larger than the Earth's orbit around the sun. It takes sunlight traveling at 186,000 miles per second, about eight and a half minutes to reach Earth. Yet that same light would take more than four years to reach the nearest star. Alpha, Alpha Centauri, some 24 trillion miles from Earth, the galaxy to which our sun belongs, the Milky Way, contains hundreds of billions of stars, 
And astronomers estimate that there are millions or even billions of galaxies. What they can see leads them to estimate the number of stars in the universe at an incredible number. I think they say billions upon billions. Uh, that, that is roughly the number of all grains of the sand on all the world's beaches. Just think about the implications of this. Christ, the one who came to save us and die for us, made everything, and he holds everything together. This is where the passage is leading now, Colossians 1, and look with me at verse 17. Colossians 1, verse 17. He made everything, and it says this, and he is before all things. That's a good way to define the word firstborn or prototokos or takas. He is before all things, and in him, what's your Bible say? All things hold together. Not only did he make everything, he's holding it all together. My understanding of what physicists say and astronomers and so forth about um, the atom is they're not quite sure why it's held together. They're not sure what power is holding it together because it should just fly apart, but it doesn't. Jesus Christ made the universe and he is holding it all together. I heard an atheist say that you know, he was examining the evidence for uh, Darwinian evolution and he was, he was really troubled because the evidence seems to be wanting, very much wanting. He said, so the two possibilities of the origin of the universe kind of frighten him. He said the first possibility that he's embraced is that there's a, this incredible universe with this incredible balance and the earth is just the right distance from the sun and all these things are working just in this intricate precision and nobody's steering. He said that's pretty frightening. Can you imagine? If, if the intricate uh, design of this universe is what it is and we, we know from science it is and nobody is steering the ship, it is a, here's what Darwinian evolution teaches, it is a product of accidental, mindless chance. It was an accident. Something exploded. We don't know where that came from. And there's all this order and design, but nobody's steering the ship. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to sleep at good, as good at night if that's in, indeed the case. Now, this evolutionist went on to say, the other possibility is there is a creator God staring everything. He said, both possibilities frighten me because he didn't know the creator. See, this is the implication of what the Bible's saying. The Bible's saying that Jesus not only made everything, he holds it all together. Can you imagine when he was on the cross with this knowledge? He could have just said, they're not worth it. Let's start over. Well, I'll just make a new universe. I'll just make new planets. But he didn't do that because he so loved you and he so loved me. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the glue of the universe. The Greek word hold together is sunisteo. It means all things cohere in Christ. He, uphold, he upholds all things, Hebrews 1.3, by the word of his power. He is powerful. He is mighty. And he is something else, verse 18. He is also the head, verse 18, of the body, the church. He is our head. He is the beginning, that's the Greek word arche, the firstborn, here's that word again, and some believe that the firstborn from verse 15 ties into verse 18, the firstborn from the dead, so that he, might, he himself might come to have 
first place in everything. See the word head there? It can mean the ruler or the source. Here, I think it means both. He is the source of the church and the ruler of the church. He's the head of the body. Your body listens to your head, hopefully. <laughs> right? Your body never really argues with your head. When your head says to your body, move, you walk, right? Your foot never says, I don't want to do it anymore. Sick of listening to you. Now, there are some things that our bodies may not be able to do because of maybe there's something not working correctly. Or there may be some things that we believe we can do in our head that physically we can no longer do. Can I get a witness? Right? I know I can jump off that. And then you land and you remember how bad your knees are. But you still listen to your head. Here's the deal. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the authority and the source of the church. And he's the firstborn from the dead. And here's what this means. He's the preeminent one, the ranking one of the, of the ones who have risen from the dead. And because he lives, the rest of creation is going to follow him. Here's what I mean. Believers are going to experience a resurrection and the physical universe is going to get a makeover. And Romans 8 says that the universe, given personality in this passage, is waiting, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That means the physical universe knows when you get resurrected, it's going to get its makeover too. It's just waiting. Come on, Lord. Let's do it. I want some new leaves. I want to sparkle a little bit brighter in the sky. This is what's going on. And Jesus is the beginning. He is the beginning, the firstborn. Now, in Revelation 3.14, this is another text that the Jehovah's Witnesses like to focus on. And, it's, and let's go over there for a second. Revelation 3. We're winding down, but just a few more. Revelation 3, look at verse 14 with me. If you're having difficulty uh, locating the book of Revelation, it's the last book of your Bible. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, Revelation 3, 14, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Now, our Jehovah's Witness friends look at this passage and they say, you see, it says that Jesus is the beginning, notice, 3, 14, of the creation of God. If you've ever studied the book of Revelation, you'll, know, you'll note that many times it says he is the beginning and the end. The Greek words are the alpha and the omega, right? If we were to call God the alpha, and he is called that, the beginning, we wouldn't believe that he had a beginning, would we? When we call God the alpha and the omega, what are we saying? He is the beginning and the end. So when we're calling him the alpha, or in Hebrew, the aleph, what we're saying is he's the beginner. Revelation 3.14 is not a passage that teaches that Jesus had a beginning. It is a passage teaching that he is the beginner. Just like Colossians 1, where it is arguing that actually Jesus is the creator. Important point, we'll do verse 19 and we'll close. Go back to Colossians 1. You cannot impose 21st century Western definitions on a book that was written 2,000 years ago. When people say, but firstborn always means firstborn. It means the first one born. No, 
Not when you are studying a text that was written almost 2,000 years ago. You need to understand the word and the meaning in its context. Everybody with me? So there are certain words that to us mean something, but you have to study the word and the history to understand it. Now, this is not that difficult. You can do this with any Bible program. But you go back and you take a look at the original word. What does the word mean? What does firstborn mean? What does the beginning mean? It's R-K in Greek. It's A-R-C-H-E, if you're interested, beginning, R-K. And the word can mean source or beginner. It's where we get the word architect. What does an architect do? He designs everything or designs a building. So that's what the word is saying here about Jesus Christ. Now, in Colossians 1, we will finish in verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure, Colossians 1.19, for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now, the word for fullness there is pleroma, and it, it does mean fullness or completeness. Jesus, Jesus is not simply a sketch of God or a summary or a lifeless portrait of God. In him, there is nothing left out. This is from Barclay. He is the full revelation of God and nothing more is necessary. Look at Colossians 2, look at verse 9. The very next chapter says this. In him, in Christ, how much? All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and keep reading and in him you have been made complete. Jesus is not an emanation from God. He is not the first and greatest creation of God. He is not some superior, high-ranking angel. He is not a lesser God with a small g, a junior partner in creation. In him dwells the fullness of God in bodily form. There is nothing missing. He is fully God. And fully man. Now you let, you and I, we have to decide to let the Bible decide this debate, right? So when we look at passages like this, as much as it might hurt our head, but how can Jesus be fully God in a body? How does that work? I don't quite understand. Hey, I don't even know how my car starts in the morning. (laughs) But I believe it. (laughs) Here's the deal. If you could figure out everything about this God, can you figure out how he spoke things into existence? Can you break that down on a chalkboard? People often say, I don't understand the Trinity. I don't get it. Well, join the club. (laughs) I don't understand how God spoke the universe into existence, but the Bible tells me he did. And here we are. And he's holding it all together. And it was the Father's good pleasure, look at verse 19, that all the fullness dwell in Jesus all the fullness of deity in bodily form. And we'll, we'll look ahead just for a second as we close. And through him, 20, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It's the blood-stained cross of the true Christ who gave his life for us. He is. If you've been wondering what life is all about, if you've been burdened by loneliness and doubt, there's an answer. He is. He is God's visible manifestation. He is the source of all creation. He made every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's the author of my salvation. He is. He is God's revelation. 
He holds together every constellation. He purchased my redemption. He made me a new creation. He is. And because he is, it answers everything. Because he's alive, I'm alive. He is. So when you're going through moments of doubt and struggling with questions about who Jesus is and maybe you know, you've come into this place and you, and you wonder as a person, why do Christians always talk about Jesus? Because he is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. He is the source of creation. He made me in you and he came to save us. Glorious, isn't it? The one who was born in Bethlehem is God Almighty. And we are so grateful that he came to save us. Father, as we are winding down here, we just want to take a few moments to just bask in the beauty of this theology. It's, uh, it's high theology. It's high, scholars would say, high Christology, the study of Christ. But it is amazing. It's amazing to understand that the one who died on the cross was the one who made everything. He made the tree that he died on. He made the people that nailed the, the nails into his hands and his feet. He made everything. And thank you that you hold it all together, Lord. And one day, you, you say, I'm gonna make new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. The Bible teaches that you're coming again. The second time you come, it'll have nothing to do with sin, but it'll have to do with redemption. It'll have to do with the redeeming of the planet, but it will have to do also with the judgment of sin. But you are not coming to die. You did that once for all, for all time. You're coming to save your people, to judge the unrighteous world, the rebellious world, and then to make new heavens and a new earth. You're gonna start again. And in Revelation, we see that there's gonna be even a Garden of Eden again, a, uh, a restored Eden in some sense because there's gonna be the tree of life again. It's gonna bear fruit and the nations will find healing and they will come to the king and they will bask in the glory of this one who made everything and came to save us. With your heart and head bowed, if you've not met this Jesus Christ, if you've not known who he truly is, if you've not bowed your knee to his majesty, if you've not realized who it was that came to save you, Today can be your day. He's here. He knows who you are. He knows your pain and your struggles. And if you would just simply open up your heart, he will save you. But you must make a decision. And it's something like this. And just don't let anything stop you from knowing this great God. Why would you live without knowing your creator and your redeemer? Lord Jesus, cry out to him. Lord Jesus, save me. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are the creator and the redeemer. I believe you died on that cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. I put my full trust in you for my salvation. I repent of my sins and receive you as my Lord and Savior. Maybe you are here today and you need to rededicate your life. You've lost some of that majesty of the grandeur of Christ. You've let everyday life steal some of that away and maybe even a sinful decision that you've made. His arms are open. Just come back to him. Just come home. Father, thank you for this precious church. I just want to pray a prayer over the saints as well that 
Their faith has been encouraged this morning that they'll go out this week proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with a new fervor, a new uh, certainty, and just a fresh touch from your Holy Spirit. We love you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.